Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. This podcast focuses on the Warner Brothers films that are part of the Justice League universe. We love the depth of these movies, and so we take the time to go through them scene by scene. This episode focuses on scenes 8 and 9 of Wonder Woman. Both of these scenes take place on the beach of Themyscira. This analysis was written by myself, Alessandro Maniscalco, Rebecca Johnson, and Sydney. You can find us on Twitter at OttenSam, at Raverin, at DerbyKid, and at WonderSid. Before we get to those scenes, we did want to say one more thing about scene 7, the diving rescue. That was obviously the big moment where Steve arrives and Diana leaps off the cliff, setting the main plot in motion, and the movie basically continues forward with good momentum from that point all the way to the end. Now, we've mentioned before that Wonder Woman, as a film, was more formulaic than Batman v Superman, and again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just a fact about the structure of Wonder Woman. But one more thing we can point out about Scene 7 and the formulaic structure is that the Save the Cat book by Blake Snyder mentions explicitly that after setting up your main character and establishing the initial setting, you are supposed to have a big inciting incident that pushes the main character out of her status quo and ignites the main plot. More specifically, Blake Snyder's blockbuster formula says that this inciting incident should happen about 12 to 15 minutes into the movie. And in Wonder Woman, Steve's arrival happens, you guessed it, at 15 minutes. But anyway, going forward, Diana has swam Steve's unconscious body to the beach, and we know that the Germans have just penetrated the protective barrier of the island. But before the Germans actually arrive on shore, we get a brief moment to catch our breath as Diana and Steve slide onto the sand. Diana starts to touch Steve's face, and then he coughs, startling her hand back. It's a nice moment where this assertive woman just dove in and saved him, but now she's a bit timid with him on the beach, and it starts the tenderness of this moment, her first time seeing a man. Steve is in a German flight suit and he's soaking wet. He coughs and catches his breath. We are naturally curious about where he came from and why the Germans are following him, and we'll get those answers right after the battle on the beach. So that will be some good pacing and some good question and answer flow for the movie. But right now, we can just settle in for a moment to the first interactions between Steve and Diana, with the soothing sound of the waves rolling in, lulling us into comfort and helping us temporarily forget that danger is just a little ways offshore. Steve collects himself and looks up at Diana, and he speaks first, saying, Wow. He is certainly feeling great relief and having survived the crash, and now he's looking up at an angelic face smiling down at him. We say angelic because the shot of Diana is framed with the sun behind her head, creating a halo effect. And indeed, the original halos in art were not tangible rings as they became above the angel's head. They were originally a lighting effect added by artists to show God's light shining down on the holy, and it gave this impression that there was kind of a circle around their head, but originally it was just the light shining. So Diana truly has an original version of a halo continuing the angel imagery that we talked about in scene 7. Also, this connects with other versions of Wonder Woman, such as the DC Animated Universe and the current DC Rebirth comic series, where Steve Trevor sometimes calls Diana Angel. And Steve's wow comment also relates directly to her beauty. And there are also some moments later in the movie where other characters react to Diana's physical looks. But it's interesting to notice that it is always people from man's world who focus on the physical appearance. 
Hippolyta never talks about her beautiful daughter. She talks about her precious and beloved daughter. Antiope focuses on strength and duty, not beauty. So it's people from man's world who fixate on Diana's looks, or at least they notice her looks first and foremost. And what I like about how the filmmakers handled this is that they made it so that Diana doesn't really seem to care. She's not flattered or swept away by the attention, and she's not really offended by the attention either. She's just very matter-of-fact about it and brushes it off, or she just pushes Samir away, for example, and then she moves on, almost like it didn't happen at all. Diana is much more about the connections and care between people and about getting to the task that needs to be done. Now granted, throughout the movie, she is probably only in man's world for a matter of days, not even weeks, so that's not enough time for her to probably get too annoyed with the fixation on her looks. But in any event, she's not going to let anyone else's fixations stop her from doing what she wants to do. As for Diana, she is looking down at a mortal man, the first that she's ever seen. And so she states this fact, you're a man. The line delivery here was really good by Godot because it was like she's saying, oh, so this is what a man is. And then we get to watch Steve, clearly a bit perplexed by the comment. He says, yeah, I mean, don't I look like one? So this is a funny line, and it sets a tone for their relationship, where we can see that they have a connection and a mutual fascination with each other, but they clearly come from different backgrounds, and it's going to take some work for them to understand each other. And it's going to be especially challenging because Diana will not just be learning about man from scratch. She has already heard many stories from her mother about man, and so she will have to reconcile the things that she sees and hears from Steve with all those stories going back to her childhood. And that also makes it especially meaningful here for Diana because she's not just seeing something new and confusing, like what is this thing? She's seeing something in the flesh that she has heard about for a long time, almost like a mythological creature to her. This meeting between the two and the water rescue leading to the beach has a little bit of a Little Mermaid feel to it. And that's not by accident. The screenwriter, Alan Heinberg, talked about the Little Mermaid as one of his influences. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, he said, The story as I see it is the Little Mermaid, specifically Disney's incarnation. This is a woman who has been raised in a very protective, sheltered life. She's curious about what life is like outside, and she wants to have her own experience. She wants to be where the people are. So that's from Heinberg, and we'll put a link to that article in the show notes. Steve asks where he is, and Diana answers matter-of-factly, Themyscira. He doesn't understand the word, and he won't really get a good answer to where he is until scene 13 in the infirmary. And when Steve says, Thema what? It's probably a nice moment for audience members who aren't very well versed with Wonder Woman's mythology. Those audience members are also probably right now trying to get used to the name of the island. But Diana pushes on with her own question, who are you? Not only is this the first man that she's seen, but it's also the first time that somebody's coming to the island. But neither of them are really going to be able to get the answers to their questions right now because events are thrust upon them. The German ships are approaching, and the rowboats with the German soldiers are headed for shore. Steve knows that they're after him and the notebook that he stole, so he gets up and starts to move away for cover. As he's doing this, he does answer Diana's question. He says, I'm one of the good guys, and those are the bad guys. Diana is confused, and Steve says the Germans... And then he says, come on, we need to get out of here. So Diana shows her naivete about the outside world, not even knowing who the Germans are, 
even though they're at the center of the Great War raging through all of Europe. And by the way, it's also a bit weird that she doesn't know who the Germans are, even though she supposedly speaks hundreds of languages, many of which are probably Germanic languages, such as English. And it would seem like if you are learning lots and lots of languages, you would learn them structurally, kind of learning, you know, the Latin family, the German family, Asian languages in clusters. And to do that, it seems like you would then know who the Germans are. But overlooking that, this uh, scene and this moment of her confusion effectively shows that she knows nothing about the war, and that will become even clearer in the interrogation scene. And speaking of the Germans, their ship is listing pretty severely to the side. At first I assumed that it was hitting the shallows, but it could also be that the weight aboard the ship has shifted to one side, such as if they're all getting ready to unload something heavy from one side. Um, but at Emmett Davis 7 on Twitter also mentioned that it could be the protective barrier around the mascara, and maybe that barrier causes mechanical problems for anything that tries to cross. So maybe the ship is affected because it sailed through the barrier. And Emmett said that maybe this is even what caused Steve's plane to crash. Maybe it wasn't shot down, but maybe it was taken out because it went through the barrier. So that's a minor point, but just something that we wanted to think about, since the filmmaker obviously took the trouble of really making that ship list to the side. And anyway, before we get into scene 9 with the battle on the beach, it's important to pause on the last couple of lines from Steve, that he's a good guy, and those are the bad guys. What seems like a simple throwaway line is actually an important continuation of one of the main arcs of the movie. Diana's growth from seeing the world in simplistic terms of good and bad, black and white, and her moving toward recognizing the complexities of the world and having to make choices once she's faced with that truth. It's just like she said in her opening monologue that she knew so little at the beginning, but that she learned more and she found out that what one does when faced with the truth is more difficult than you think. So Steve's line is highlighting the simplistic beginning good guys and bad guys, and the good should fight and vanquish the bad. And it's not only Diana who needs to learn that all of this is too simplistic, it's Steve too. By the end, he will also come to realize that everybody has both good and bad, and we all contribute to the evils of society in at least some small way. Hippolyta has already learned these lessons. She has seen good people get corrupted and give in to their baser urges, and she already knows that war is not something to hope for. It's not so simple as just defeating the bad guys. Hippolyta also knows the true dangers entailed in men arriving on the island, and Diana being exposed through her interactions with outsiders. So Hippolyta yells from off-screen, launching us into scene 9. Hippolyta yells, step away from her, now! I love Connie Nielsen's line delivery here, especially her now. That way that she says that just really sticks with me. And she put a lot of emotion into that line, a mother worrying about her daughter. And I think it's fitting that her first concern is about Diana, continuing the protective streak that she's had throughout the movie thus far, all of which will culminate in the farewell scene when Diana leaves. And then Hippolyta leads her Amazon soldiers, first with the archers lighting their arrows and preparing to fire. Hippolyta, of course, does not trust men, given her history with them, so she's getting ready for battle. As the archers draw their bows, Steve asks, They have guns, right? As if to say that bows and arrows are no match for the Germans. But he is about to get his first education in Amazonian battle prowess. The battle begins with the Germans firing first, and then the Amazons return fire with their arrows. 
Even with Apollo's distrust of men, she still waited until they attacked her, confirming their ill intentions. Throughout this first part of the battle, there is a very calm but ominous musical cue that is preparing us for something. As the Germans begin attacking, we hear the music pick up with the drums and with brief and fast dramatic strings. Then the horns enter, giving a sense of heroism to the Amazons, and then leading into some more strings evoking desperation and danger. Overall, this fight scene is really effective because it has a very memorable setting, and that setting is central to the plot of the story. It's very meaningful that these are the first men to violate the shores of Themyscira. It's also really great to see some creativity on the part of the filmmakers. They didn't just make a generic action sequence and then have the women carry it out and then just happen to have it on this beach. The filmmakers thought about what they had to work with in terms of the Amazon's design and capabilities, and then they found ways to choreograph things specifically for them and specifically in this setting of the beach. There were several unique moments, but some of the ones that are the most noteworthy are the swinging archers, the warriors on horseback, all women, coming into battle, the collaborative horseback maneuvers, and the acrobatic twists and throws, and then of course there's Antiope's shield jump near the end, which we'll talk about more in a moment, but that was definitely a unique thing to this fight. The scene also does a nice job of paying off the Amazon training that we saw earlier, and it continues with the motif of the Amazons having more fluid and graceful fighting styles, in contrast with the men who just stand and fire their loud smoky rifles. Now, going through a bit of it in more detail, Steve actually pulls Diana aside, hiding them both behind a couple boulders. Diana wants to help, but this is all totally new to her, and so it takes her a moment to gather herself and before she disregards Steve's commands and goes into it. But as Diana is hiding behind the rock, looking on at everything happening, we get the swinging archers, and then the slow motion bullet shot of the German killing one of the Amazons. This is Diana's first time seeing a bullet, and the slow motion emphasizes how important this moment is for her, coming face to face with violence and death in a new way. And again, like always, it's a strong point of view moment for Diana. It also gives us a clue to Diana's eventual powers, because she can track the bullet, while Steve and any regular person wouldn't be able to. This bullet slow-mo is also a setup for the iconic bullet shot in No Man's Land. Patty Jenkins, in an interview with uh, American Cinematographer magazine, said that they used 60 to 150 frames per second for emotional moments, such as when Diana sees something for the first time. Seeing something for the first time definitely includes this moment here with the bullet. And it also might refer to the more subtle slow motion that was used later in the movie on the docks, scene 26, when Diana is seeing severe wounds and suffering for the first time. For some of the action sequences, Jenkins said that they actually used 500 frames per second. Some people have commented that there's too much slow-mo, but Patty Jenkins said, quote, Some people say slow-mo is out, but I'll use whatever is the right tool to tell the story. I didn't feel forced into any style, nor was I afraid of any style, end quote. Even beyond this movie, it's also a big moment for the character of Diana to realize that weapons in man's world are far deadlier than what she is used to. In George Perez's comic book run, for example, Diana has to pass a test called the Trial of Flashing Thunder, which involves her deflecting bullets using her bracelets, and it's her seeing guns and bullets for the first time. Although in the movie it's handled differently than that comic book, there is still the emotional importance of seeing the bullets, and her eventually learning how to deflect them. 
So Diana is shocked by this death in the scene, and this tragedy seems to confirm what Steve said, that these Germans are the bad guys. The Germans seem to have a bit of an upper hand at the start of the battle, but then in rides Antiope with the Amazons on horseback. Antiope, the general, is riding right at the front of the pack. This, and her sacrificial death in a moment, both serve to contrast sharply with the British general later in the movie. And it's also interesting to note that according to some actual legends in Western mythology, it was the Amazons who may have invented the cavalry charge. But of course that's not confirmed, it's just legend at this point. Anyway, we get some of those horse-based moves that we were set up with in the training scene, and I think this arrival and initial fight between the Amazons and the Germans on the beach was the big shot that was designed by second unit director Damon Caro of Batman v Superman fame. He was the lead director on the action and stunts, while Patty Jenkins took care of the shots with the principal actors and the dialogue. And we do have to say that there were some great stunts here, some people who looked like they were really legitimately taking dives hard into the sand. And for the big arrival of the Amazons, Caro designed a system where they built a track for the camera that came down and swooped around the action, and they built that right on the beach, and then it was computerized so that they could run the camera down multiple times exactly the same way each time, and they could film multiple layers and then composite them together in post-production. For example, they could have a few Amazon warriors riding at the front of the pack and film them riding in and engaging with a small group of Germans. Then they could do a take with Amazons on horseback off to one side, engaging with other Germans off to the side. Then they could do another take with Amazons in the background, and so on. Overall, they had 14 layers for that big sweeping shot, and they put those together in post. During the fight, Steve again tells Diana to stay back because to him, it is probably instinctual that women such as Diana are not supposed to enter combat and he has to look out for them, even though there are a bunch of impressive Amazons right in front of his face. But he probably doesn't really have enough time to totally process what he's seen. Diana stays back for just a moment, but after Steve goes forward and tackles a German soldier to get a rifle, Diana goes ahead and joins in the fight herself. This is where Diana gets to use the archery skills that she showed earlier, and it's also a moment where Diana feels compelled to help, which will be a hallmark of the character all the way through the movie. Next, even Hippolyta joins in the fight. She has a big spinning dismount from her horse, and she takes out several Germans. It shows that she's not just a figurehead, but she can still tap into that warrior background that she has as the one who led the Amazons to freedom. I do have to say, though, for me personally, I didn't really like this particular moment of CG with Hippolyta spinning. Something about it just didn't land quite right with me, and it's not necessarily just the CG, I think the camera angle they chose was not very flattering for the spin move, because with this camera angle, the spin ended up kind of just happening in the same spot on the screen, so the spin was sort of collapsed into two dimensions instead of a different angle that may have made it more dynamic and showed more kinetic motion with the spin and more dimensionality. But anyway, it might just be a matter of personal opinion, because I've seen other people online who said that this moment with Hippolyta was one of their favorite moments, and there are also some people contributing to this podcast who really like this moment. But either way, it's just a minor detail in an otherwise stellar action scene. The whole battle shows the Amazons as a force to be reckoned with. Their skills are able to outmatch the deadly technology of the Germans and they just generally seem to be more fluid and in sync than the Germans. And by the way, it will be great to see the Amazons back in action in just a few months with Justice League. 
But for right now, there are just a couple more beats in the fight. Antiope gets knocked off her horse, and the slow-mo twisting horse dismount is echoed later with Diana's dismount during the Wonder Woman's Wrath scene, scene 41. Antiope, on the ground, goes with the flow and uses the sand as a quiver as she pivots on her knees and takes out several more Germans. She even shoots one of the Germans off to the side without looking at him. Later, Steve Trevor does the same kind of thing with his rifle. He shoots a German off to his left without even looking. That repetition of Antiope doing it, and then Steve doing it, might be a subtle foreshadowing of the fact that Steve will later repeat Antiope's shield move. Speaking of the shield move, Antiope sees the three German soldiers behind the boulder, and she yells at Menelope for the shield. Steve looks on, taking notes for later, and then it's just a great dynamic moment with an awesome push-off with Antiope's leg that looks amazingly realistic, like she really is launching herself. And then Antiope soars with deadly grace over the boulder. This is just another great use of slow-mo because it's an epic and unique moment of action and it lets it really sink in and it lets the music swell. Right after that triple shot with her bow, Antiope sees Diana, who had been fighting pretty well in the battle, but unbeknownst to Diana, a German is about to have a clean shot right at her, and Antiope dives in just in time to intercept the bullet. And Diana immediately knows what this means because she saw a bullet kill an Amazon at the beginning of the scene, so now it has even more emotional punch when it hits Antiope. Diana screams, no, and runs to Antiope's side. Steve shoots the last Germans, including that German who killed Antiope, which is probably what he's going to get thanked for later by Diana. And then Steve runs over to Antiope too. But he wisely steps off to the side to give more space for the people who actually know and love Antiope. Diana is with Antiope first, and Antiope tells her that the time has come. This is the start of a time motif that we will trace into further scenes, culminating in the watch that Steve gives to Diana at the end when he wishes that they had more time. But here, Antiope says the time has come, and Antiope also says God killer, almost as if she is calling Diana the God killer, but Diana interprets it to mean the sword, and she's not really sure what it means about the sword. Then Antiope says, Diana, go. But Diana doesn't really know what she means, and she's overwhelmed with emotion because Diana has probably never experienced death like this before. Diana continuously says, no, no, no. Then Hippolyta comes up, followed by an emotionally devastated Manilope, who shouts, no, and collapses down with Antiope. Manilope was the one who just did the shield maneuver with Antiope, and she was always the closest one to Antiope during the trainings. She's the same person who checked on Antiope after the bracelet blast in scene 5. The art and making of the film book describes Manilope as Antiope's younger sister, which would also make her Hippolyta's younger sister. And this is in line with the comics that have them as sisters, but I and many others, just based on what is shown in the movie, thought that Manilope was Antiope's romantic partner, constituting a subtle allusion to lesbian relationships on the island, which makes logical sense, and which has also been suggested in many of the comics, including the present Rebirth era. And I still actually choose to think of Manilope and Antiope that way, as romantically involved, because they never call each other sister in the movie explicitly, and since all Amazons were created by the gods rather than born of mortal mothers and fathers, I don't really know what sister actually means for the Amazons. In one sense, yeah, they're all sisters, but yet they're not biological sisters. 
so it would still be appropriate for them to be romantically involved if they so choose. At least that's my view, and I know I'm not alone in that view. And in the comics, Diana refers to other Amazons and even mortal women as sister all the time, so it seems reasonable to assume that sister does not necessarily mean blood-related. In the George Perez run, Hippolyta, Antiope, and Manilope were the first three Amazons to be born, in that order. So by that order, Manilope would be Antiope's younger sister, but not necessarily in a familial sense. The only exception might be Hippolyta and Antiope, who do seem like they were meant to be literal sisters, because promotional materials for the movie refer to Antiope as Diana's aunt. But this might just be because of the kind of relationship that Hippolyta and Antiope struck up over hundreds of years. They ended up being like sisters, and so basically they became sisters as far as the Amazons were concerned, whereas Antiope and Manilope may have become romantically involved instead, and so they would be sisters in the general sense, but not sisters in the familial sense because of the kind of relationship they chose to have. Anyway, the film does not do any more than hint at the relationship, so it's definitely open for interpretation. One thing that's very clear either way is that Manilope loved Antiope and is heartbroken at the loss. Hippolyta is also angered and blames Steve, the only remaining representative of man's world, and the first to set foot on the island, so he kind of brought the Germans behind him. But Diana stands up in Steve's defense, saying he fought beside her. She is already showing that she is brave enough to stand up to authority figures when she believes she is in the right. Nevertheless, Steve's character is called into question when Manilope asks what kind of person fights against his own people. Steve is merely disguised as a German, but it is understandable for the Amazons to think that he is one of the Germans. As far as they know, the Germans were attacking Themyscira, not just trying to come for Steve. Steve doesn't want to say much because he's a spy, and he doesn't know who these people are. He needs to keep his secrets. Knowledge is power, after all. And this also brings in elements of trust. The Amazons don't trust Steve, in large part because he is a man, but also because he is an outsider. And Steve doesn't trust them because he doesn't know who they are. The fact that Steve doesn't answer their questions also intrigues the audience and draws us forward in our seats because we want those answers too. But first there's the question of what to do with Steve Trevor. It is suggested that they kill him and be done with it. But then one of the Amazons of color speaks up and says that if they kill him, they won't know who these men are or why they came. That last line we wanted to say was delivered really well. Um, not all of the little one-liners from Amazons are well acted, but this one was really on the nose. It was greatly delivered. And it was an actress, and a, an Amazon, who is very often by Hippolyta's side. But she didn't get a ton of lines, um, but this one she just made the most of it. And these quick interactions overall, they show Hippolyta's leadership style, uh, which is also shown to be similar in later scenes, which is that she allows for open consultation and perspectives to just be offered and then Hippolyta considers them and makes a decision. But that wraps up scene 9, where obviously the death of Antiope was the most important occurrence. But it also is one of the most memorable scenes of the movie, just overall the battle on the beach, because of the uniqueness and beauty of the action. Before we close down this scene, we do want to mention a critique that we've seen online, that it was in poor taste for the filmmakers to have Diana more emotionally rocked later in the movie by Steve's death than she was by Antiope's death, 
because Antiope was her mentor for years and years. And so the critique is that Diana should have been devastated and that devastation should have lasted longer than it does here. I would say that Diana was emotionally devastated by Antiope's death, and her grief at Antiope's death took the form of Diana dedicating herself to fulfilling her mission, which Antiope supported, and Diana living up to the responsibility of wearing Antiope's tiara. Perhaps the critics were thinking that Diana's grief had to go on and on as, like, deep sorrow, but we think that the grief took the form not of paralyzing sadness, but of Diana doing something with doing something being a theme of the movie. And after all, there's no right way or wrong way to grieve, and audiences don't have the right to tell a person or a character how they're supposed to grieve. But if we had to think about why Diana reacted even more strongly to Steve's death, it might be because she felt her relationship with him was just getting started. They needed more time. So it's not only a death, but sort of a robbing of what she was just starting to sense might be a future together. With Antiope, it was a death, but it was more like losing something they had in the past. They already had a substantial amount of time together, perhaps even hundreds of years. And Antiope had already passed on to Diana what she needed to. The training in Scene 5 kind of showed that Diana was nearing the end of what Antiope could show her. Furthermore, romantic loss in movies is very often played more dramatically than the death of an older family member. So it's not fair to single out Wonder Woman for having this kind of reaction. And besides, the type of love was different. It was romantic love with Steve. And they didn't just have training together, they were actually in warfare together. And those intense experiences accelerated their closeness in a relatively short period of time. So all of this is to say, both deaths affected Diana. She was saddened by both, and both spurred her into action to honor her fallen loves. To try to compare her reactions, or to say that one is right and one is wrong, is just silly. Alright, that's our analysis of scenes 8 and 9 of Wonder Woman. To close out this episode, we just want to make a few remarks about the Amazons. First of all, we wanted to say that, in our view, the Amazons do not actually have super strength or invulnerability, they just have exceptional training made possible by their exceptionally long lives. In some iterations of the Wonder Woman comics, all Amazons have a certain extent of superpowers, but in most versions, Diana is very exceptional, like she is in the movie. With regard to the Amazon costumes, they were designed for this movie by Lindy Hemming of the Dark Knight fame, but they were explicitly inspired by Wilkinson's design for Wonder Woman in BVS. Hemming sometimes used V's instead of W's for some of the chest designs, and the art and making of the film book explains that they used 3D printing to print out body models of the main actors so that they could do the costume fittings. In the past few scenes, we've seen Amazon clothing, but now we saw the warriors' battle clothing. There's a certain organic element to their attire, not encumbered, and it appears somewhat tribal. Diana herself seems to be covered in leather wrappings. This certainly invites the question of what type of animals can be found on Themyscira. Director Patty Jenkins was cited as saying, quote, How would I want to live that's badass and that's me? Diana, Prince, Wonder Woman. To me, the Amazons and Wonder Woman shouldn't be dressed in armor like men. It should be different. It should be authentic and real, and appealing to women. It's total wish fulfillment. As a woman, I want Wonder Woman to be hot as hell, fight badass, and look great at the same time. The same way men want Superman to have huge pecs and an impractically big body. 
that makes them feel like the hero they want to be. And my hero, in my head, has really long legs." End quote. The Amazon style, and especially Wonder Woman's ensemble, projects strength while incorporating a sense of traditional femininity from the high boots, which enunciate the legs, the pseudo-skirt, which is open for mobility, the double eagle shape on her chest, which emphasizes and outlines the bust, and the tiara, which is a headdress traditionally worn by women. Some of these are, of course, staples of the character, and even subtle nods to Marston's interest in BDSM, including the lasso, but the costume has been modernized and is more in line with a warrior's attire, drawing on the Greek influences that Wilkinson used. Hippolyta wears a sleeveless sort of vest, often worn by Celtic lords, which identifies her in a position of authority among the Amazons. It is also lined with fur from an unknown animal, which is further indicative of their connection to nature. Capes are also worn by some of the Amazons, and the draped cloth is reminiscent of goddesses, such as Athena. Alright, so those are some thoughts about the clothing. In the next scene, we'll get to see a little bit of Amazonian governmental proceedings, which is very different than the British system. Thanks for listening, and check out the Suicide Squadcast or the Man of Steel Answers podcast if you're looking for more DCEU content.